KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. Fargo creator Noah Hawley's anthology series is just wrapping up its fifth critically acclaimed season. He still has more ideas for the show, and in spite of the ongoing upheaval in Hollywood, Hawley says he believes gifted creators will always be able to tell their stories. Every generation has its masterpieces. You know, we had masterpieces before the golden age of television, and we'll have masterpieces afterwards. It's our responsibility to make them and to trick these corporations into paying for us to make them. Right. Holly talks to Eric Deggins about his upcoming television adaptation of Ridley Scott's Alien franchise, and he explains why he thinks people are getting tired of densely plotted shows on TV, including season four of Fargo, which had 23 main characters. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my colleague and banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So, um... Sad but true for a lot of people, deep cuts at Amazon. Uh, Lucas Shaw at Bloomberg wrote about their extravagant spending, in many cases not producing much of a return. I had written about the same subject previously and drawn their ire, I will say. Uh, They were very angry. But as Lucas reported after my piece ran, they are looking to belt tighten and, and a lot of people are getting let go. And uh, they're blending MGM, the movie studio, with Amazon's movie-making unit. So they're consolidating, reorganizing, and of course, it's all about saving money. Yeah, that's what's going on here. I mean, across the board at Amazon, the parent company as well, you know, they're eliminating 500 jobs at Twitch, the streamer for gamers. They are looking very closely at Amazon Studios and what they are doing. MGM has this secondary streamer, MGM Plus, which puts out original content. They are squeezing those executives together and kind of consolidating that. It was interesting. I was looking at the list of MGM Plus shows that they were talking about when they're talking about, you know, the kinds of things they're making. Have you heard of any of these? Godfather of Harlem. Yes, I have. You have? (laughs) Billy the Kid, a show called From, and there's a new show called Hotel Cocaine. I had not heard of any of those shows and those are on I heard MGM one Plus. out of four you know <laughs> and they do they make MGM makes shows for other outlets too they make Wednesday for Netflix and Handmaid's Tale for Hulu and Fargo based on the MGM library stuff but Amazon needs to figure out its lane and we've been saying this for a couple of years now and they still haven't quite got it they've been it seems like they've been integrating MGM for two years Yeah, and I've heard that a bunch of TV choices that the creative studio side wants to go forward with are being challenged by the money people. So there's been kind of this ongoing combat. I will note that we are about to see ads pop up in your stream because Amazon will now automatically give you those ads. And of course, again, trying to make more money. And uh, if you don't want it, you have to opt out and pay more for the ad-free version. So I think people have shown a lot of people that they would prefer to put up with some ads instead of paying extra money. Oh, the vast majority of people are going to keep their Amazon Prime with ads. They're not going to pay the $3 extra. And that's a huge deal because Amazon is such a behemoth that they are going to reap a lion's share of the streaming video revenue. If I was another 
traditional streamer looking to sell ads, I would be scared of Amazon. It also raises questions about the future of Freebie, which is Amazon's existing ad-driven platform. And their PR people are in overdrive saying, oh, no, 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 it's going to be the same for Freebie. Exactly. I, I yeah. do not believe that is the case. I think that the originals on Freebie are probably going to go bye-bye and just go into Amazon Prime Video. And Freebie will exist as a licensing repository where they'll put you know older shows and stuff. But it's just easier for the customer if it's Amazon Prime with ads, Amazon Prime without ads. Right. There were many, many rumors, and my sources all heard that they were shutting Freebie. But for what it's worth, sources inside Amazon were denying it. Let me turn quickly to what is going on with Paramount. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had a story kind of advancing the story. You started this with a report a couple of months ago, I think. But the gist is that David Ellison, son of Larry Ellison, and the person who runs Skydance, which has partnered with Paramount on a number of movies, including big ones like Mission Impossible, that David Ellison, with the backing of his father, would be looking to take control by taking control of this national amusements entity that basically controls Paramount. So it appears that that may be serious with some backing from a couple of other players, Redbird and Tencent. And, you know, Sherry Redstone just has to accept that at some point, I mean, if they do go forward and buy it or if some other merger goes through, like the chatted about potential with Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, it's going to get broken up. Nobody can keep all the pieces of that empire that her father built together. Yeah, the news on Ellison is that they've come up with a scenario for how they would try to buy Paramount. They would put an all cash offer in for national amusements and then do a second transaction where they would try to merge the Paramount studio with Skydance. Now, the problem with that is that there are shareholders of Paramount that are not the controlling shareholders that may not love this deal that would benefit National Amusements and the Redstones and may not benefit the non-Redstone shareholders as much as they would like. And those shareholders would have to sign off on that deal. Now, money tends to solve all these problems, but that could be a hiccup if they try to go that direction. Yeah, money is in short supply. Not on the Ellison side. They've got nothing but money. Yes, I was <laughs> with the exception of the Ellisons. You know, it was kind of funny. David did not that well at first. And his other child, Megan, had all of these art house type of movies that were very respected. Then Megan kind of faded. And David, meanwhile, kind of corrected course and has been much more successful. But Larry, you know, he's in the past tried to keep a bit of a rein on those kids. But we'll see. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Fargo creator Noah Hawley's anthology series has already amassed a staggering 51 hours of critically acclaimed television. And Hawley says he hasn't run out of stories yet. After four seasons of period storytelling, the latest edition of Fargo is set in 2019. Juno Temple plays Dot, a housewife with a secret past who's on the run from Sheriff Roy Tillman, played by John Hamm. I see a woman who outsmarted two kidnappers. Are you okay, ma'am? Never do you mention she is a tiger. She's claiming it never happened. Never what now? She's a wolf in sheep's clothing, that one. Honestly, I'm embarrassed by all the fuss. So Fargo is an anthology series. You got new storylines and characters every season. 
And I guess my first question is, are you surprised you made it to the fifth season <laughs> of this show? It feels like such a high wire act every season that you roll out a new storyline and new characters. Yeah, it's, you know, what, we're not, we're at 51 hours now. It's a lot of story and, you know, five unique standalone stories with, you know, last season we had 23 main characters. Um, you know, there's a reason that I don't try to do them every year. Um, it's a lot of moving pieces on a collision course and and they all have to make sense and, and collide in just the right places. And, you know, and each season is sort of about a specific set of themes. And so it takes me a while to really figure out, you know, to get enough together to justify people's time. And that's an interesting point. I was sort of wondering, like, what makes for a good Fargo storyline? I mean, how do you know when you have an idea that this is one that could actually go the distance and not only fill a full season, but fill a full season in the way that a Fargo season needs to be? Well, it can't, you know, it has to have enough elements to it, honestly. Um, you know, it seems crazy, but the third year that had Ewan McGregor in it um, and Mary Winstead and Michael Stuhlbarg, you know, I wrote the first two hours and realized that I didn't have enough pieces so I came up with the David Thewlis storyline and characters. And it seems crazy that those weren't part of the original idea. Because I know, that so, was such a cool part of that story. Well, and so seminal to it, but but it was about the brothers for me. And then I realized that the brothers themselves, that that brother versus brother thing, it didn't have enough elements to it in order to overcome what John Landgraf once called the late middle problem, right? Which is, <laughs> right, right. Which is that you usually have a big middle episode and you know you're going to have a big end episode and you get that episode seven, episode eight lull, right? Mm -hmm. And and I always want to make sure that every episode is critical and the audience never feels like they just want to get to the end. So you need those pieces. You know, the story doesn't get written to standing sets, right? It's it's a... Right. I know I'm not supposed to call it a 10 hour movie anymore, but, but it, you know, it, it's on some level in that it has a beginning, middle and end in one season, you know, it is a 10 hour story and you don't have to justify building that gas station. You can use it and move on, you know, in a different way than if you were in a recurring series where you knew you were going to amortize those costs over multiple seasons. Right, right. What's interesting to me is like we're used to anthology series where the type of the story is what unites them, like Black Mirror or The Twilight Zone or something like that, or American Horror Story. But in this case, it feels like kind of the culture of the Midwest is what kind of unites all of these different stories. I mean, is it as simple as saying that sort of Minnesota nice attitude is what unites all these different iterations of the show? Yeah, I sort of think of it as decency versus evil, not good versus evil, you know, but the story of basically decent people who are probably in over their heads. Um, right. I, I think there's a unifying factor to it on that level, which is, you know, Patrick Wilson was certainly a heroic character, but he was not a larger than life man, you know, and, and he many times during the story thought, I don't know if I'm up for this, you know, Allison Tolman or Carrie Coon, you know, these are people who, when they woke up that morning, did not expect that they were going to be confronting some kind of true American corruption and evil that as, you know, Tommy Lee Jones says in No Country for Old Men, you know, 
I don't want to push my chips and go go all in to go face something I don't understand. I do think there's a unifying element, which is an exploration of America, both decent and corrupt. And a lot of that has to do with money and the things that people do for money and and the way that we either support each other or exploit each other. And so far, I haven't run out of stories. <laughs> That's for sure. So you mentioned how these characters could be compared to characters from Coen Brothers movies. Is that something that's important for the TV version of Fargo to have these touchstones that harken back to the Coen Brothers work? Well, you know, it's a strange process. I'll I'll tell you to do this. Obviously, the show now has a life of its own, you know, after, as I said, 51 hours of, of story. And yet every time I start to think about a story, I'm kind of looking just for touchstone points or landmarks, you know, mm. of a relationship that feels like a Coen Brothers relationship or a set piece, something like that. And I do think there's a really interesting tension for the audience. If you take a moment that feels familiar to them, one character walks another character out into the woods who's begging for their life. And you think, oh, this is Miller's Crossing. But mm. what happens in the woods is completely different than what happened in the movie. You know, what's happening in your brain when you're watching is that you're both remembering and discovering at the same time, which is two different parts of your brain. I, I find it very interesting to give audiences that opportunity <laughs> to go, I know what's going to happen. Oh, wait, that's not what I thought was going to happen. But in a way that's delightful, you know what I mean, versus versus feeling disappointed because if I just gave you what you saw before, that would be disappointing. But I don't know. There's something about, you know, since I was never asked to remake Fargo, I was asked to make a Coen Brothers movie that resembled Fargo tonally. You know what I mean? <laughs> open to interpretation. And so for me, there's always a process, you know, and it's not like I go looking. I sort of will think of a character or a relationship and it'll just pop into my head. It's like, oh, right. I saw there's a similar dynamic at play in the movie Fargo, for example. And so an audience is going to what they're going to expect is this. But what I'm going to give them is that. I was wondering, too, if there were any true stories that may have influenced you on this, because, you know, this is the most contemporary Fargo that we've seen. And having a constitutional sheriff who's very right wing and kind of extremist in his views and and putting him up against a woman who's fighting for her own liberation in a way seems to be setting up a lot of discussions that we're having right now politically. And so I was wondering if there was any true stories that inspired that or if you're just playing in that field because it feels like that's what we're talking about now. Well, certainly as as, you know, someone who reads the news, who lives in the same Americas as everyone else and is always sort of trying to consider where the threat might come from to this democracy that, that we all enjoy. You know, I've done a lot of reading about what was the fringe, right? And it now feels more and more like the mainstream, right? But this idea of these Joe Arpaio sheriffs, this sense of the constitutional sheriff, this sense of a group of people who are searching for justifications for behavior that is hard to justify. You know, it's in the same way that that turn the other cheek Jesus has become warrior Jesus. 
right? Which is like, we want to act this way, but we still want to be able to call ourselves Christian. So we need to kind of redefine what that is so that we're still covered. You know, and I think that character contains such a paradox, right? The constitutional sheriff, the moral authority, the man who says, I am the law, but almost as a way to justify their own lawlessness. It's that sort of thing that we experienced under our last president, which was basically like, if I do it, it's not a crime. If you do it, it's a crime. If I do it, it's not a crime. You know, I started saying in the third year of Fargo that irony without humor is just violence, right? Like in Kafka, a man is put on trial for a crime that they will never tell him what it is. It's like the setup for a joke, but it's not funny, right? It's just violent. That paradox becomes violent. You you know, and I think we all experienced so much of that over the last few years, which is like, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. And that, for better or worse plays into a kind of Coen Brothers absurdity where you don't know if Anton Chigurh's haircut is supposed to be a joke or not, right? It's so ridiculous, the Prince Valiant that he's wearing, and you feel like, I'm uncomfortable because it's funny, but it's not played funny. And so it's just scary that someone has that strange a self-image and sense of themselves. You immediately feel at risk because that person presents in such an unexpected way. Coming up after the break, Noah Hawley spills the beans about his upcoming series based on Ridley Scott's Alien franchise. And no, he's not including anything from the prequels. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. Emmy-winning writer Noah Hawley has spent the past 10 years exploring what he calls a battle between decency and evil in his anthology series Fargo. The show, loosely based on the Coen Brothers film of the same name, features characters he describes as basically decent people who are probably in over their heads, just as you might find in a Coen Brothers film. Holly says he has more stories to tell in the world of Fargo, but his next TV project is based on another successful film, Ridley Scott's Alien. Production began in Bangkok last July and then stalled due to the SAG-AFTRA strike. Eric Degen spoke to Noah Hawley about that upcoming series and industry-wide concerns about AI. This is a business, so I guess I have to ask you a question about the industry. I mean, we're hearing concerns about AI, and I just wonder, as a writer and director, how do you feel about this technology? Does it feel like something that could be a, a boon to what you're doing or something that could be a hindrance? Is it not that, you know, binary for you? 
Well, I mean, I think it's a tool, right? I mean, it's a tool until it takes over. <laughs> it's a tool until it becomes a Terminator. <laughs> yeah. And look, the reality is we're using it. We've been using it for a while. And, and you know, we're trying to figure out how to use it without being used by it. And, and certainly, I think that it's critical that we protect our own jobs, you know, from being outsourced to machines you know, the question becomes, where's the line? As someone who spent the last 10 years telling stories about the evil of capitalism, you know, I tend to be a realist about capitalism, you know, and the reality is these corporations that employ us, you know, they'll give up as much as they're willing to give up. And we have to be realistic about that. But I don't think that the purpose of these strikes was to revolutionize the way that business is done in Hollywood. That's not the ask. Right. We just want to get back some things we've lost, protect some things that we have and get some modest financial gains. Yeah. Yeah. So as a bona fide sci fi nerd or a blurred, if you will, I'm black nerd. Uh (laughs) I got to ask you about Alien, man. What can you tell us about the TV series that you're crafting that you got to shoot a fair amount of before you had to stop in August? Uh, What can you tell us about this show, man? Us alien fans are chomping at the bit. We really are. Yeah, I mean, I think what's what's great for me, you know, we talked earlier, I think, about how I know I have enough for a Fargo story. You know, there have to be enough elements to it. And and if it was just a monster movie, I don't think there would be enough there. You know, it's one of the great monsters of all time. But when you think about, you know, making 10, 20, 30, 40 hours of something, even if you had 60% of the best horror action around, you still have 40% of what are we talking about? What's the show about? You know, thematically, character-wise, it has to exist as a drama outside of those other elements. And so that was the challenge for me, you know, and, and I think that if I have a skill at this niche that I've carved for myself of kind of reimagining great films, you know, in long form, but sort of understanding how the movie made me feel and how to create that feeling in others while telling you a totally different story. Right. And the thing with with Alien is that it's not just a great monster movie. It's the story of humanity trapped between its primordial parasitic past and the AI future. And they're both trying to kill us. Right. And so there's nowhere to go. And so it's really a story of does humanity deserve to survive? You know, does humanity's arrogance at thinking that we're no longer food and its arrogance at creating these AI beings who we think will do what we tell them, but ultimately might lose their minds? You know, is there a way out? There's a moment in the second film where Sigourney Weaver says, you know, I don't know which species is worse you know, at least they don't screw each other over for a percentage, you know, and I think there's something really intriguing about that idea for me, you know, which is about an exploration of humanity and all its goods and, and evils. And then, you know, trying to recreate for an audience those feelings that you had in watching those first two films, which isn't easy in a franchise that has had four subsequent films and, and another film coming out soon. But I think I have some tricks up my sleeve. And so will this connect at all to the more recent films that we saw? I mean, you know, Ridley Scott and sort of the folks who worked on the, I think the last two Alien movies provided a lot of backstory on how the Alien got created and, 
who was sitting in that chair in the very first movie. Um, are you paying attention to any of that, or for you, does that not exist? Well, I think, you know, and, and Ridley and I have talked about this um, and many, many elements of the show. You know, I think for me and, and for, you know, for a lot of people, this perfect life form, as it was described in, in the first film, you know, is the product of millions of years of evolution that created this creature that may have existed for a million years out there in space, you know. And the idea that on some level that it was a bioweapon created half an hour ago is just inherently less useful to me. You know what I mean? As yep. in terms of the mythology and what's scary about this monster. What I also will say is when you look at those first two movies, what you have is a retro futuristic technology. You have... Right giant computer monitors, these weird keyboards, you know, it's ASCII, right, on on the screen. (laughs) And you have to make a choice. Am I doing that? Because in the prequels that Ridley made, the technology was thousands of years advanced from the technology of Alien, which is supposed to take place in that movie's future. And so there's something about that that doesn't really compute for me. And I prefer the retrofuturism of the first two films. And so that's the choice that I've made is to embrace that. There's no holograms. Um, the convenience of beautiful Apple Store technology is not available to me. All right. All right. Well, thank you for my little fix of, of alien uh, <laughs> knowledge. I appreciate it. I think I said a lot without saying anything. Well, I I don't know. You said a lot to me. I, I appreciate it. A final question. I mean, you wrote a piece for The Hollywood Reporter where you talked about the coming clarity era for television. And I thought that was really interesting. And you sort of referred to those ideas a little earlier in our discussion even. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant? And do you still think that that's what's happening? Well, what I said basically is, you know, we, we we're living in such complicated times you know, both trying to understand exactly what is going on in our world and then the sort of moral clarity of what's going on in our world. And what do you do when the people who say they're the good guys turn out to be the bad guys, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there was a period of time in which we tried to use that complexity in in our stories and tell more complex stories and more morally complicated stories. And a lot of those stories are what we call topical, right? They're stories mm-hmm. that are either about our current moment or they're using, say, the Watergate scandal to reflect on our current political moment, et cetera, et cetera. And I just have an instinct as a storyteller, but also as a viewer, that it's too much. People are feeling overwhelmed by the amount of complexity that they have in their daily lives and the world around them. And they're going to want, and they do currently wants stories that they can understand, um, that are understandable to them. And that doesn't necessarily mean simplistic, right? But I found even for myself, season four of Fargo, 23 main characters set in 1950, an American crime epic, right? Historical epic. Season five of Fargo, five main characters. You know what I mean? It's a more streamlined and simplified story where the stakes are clearer. And I didn't do that to react to an audience. It was just my instinct as a storyteller that, you know, what I needed was a sense of urgency, 
and I needed a 42 to 44 minute episode versus last year where I had 55, 60 minute episodes. Just keep it simple. Let the simple things be simple. It doesn't mean we take any of the complexity you know, out of the morality in a way, but it does mean that I'm not asking as much of the audience that they do a lot of work. My instinct is that's the challenge that we as storytellers are going to face, right? Which is how do we tell great stories with this new set of rules? And, you know, as I said in the piece, every generation has its masterpieces. You know, we had masterpieces before the golden age of television and we'll have masterpieces afterwards. It's our responsibility to make them and to trick these corporations into paying for us to make them, right? The challenge of it is, is you know, I get to go out every day and my friends at the Disney Corporation spend millions of dollars to tell a story that I think is funny because <laughs> they think that other people will think it's funny. But if you think about that too long, you go a little mad at the responsibility of it. But, you know, it's like, I'm there to make them the money they deserve, and I'm there to make you the show that you want. There you go. Noah Hawley is the creator of Fargo. The series is now airing on FX and can be streamed on Hulu. Thank you so much for joining us on The Business, Noah Hawley. Thank you. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's show with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.